Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, most of which are heard on Upfront and the Talkies, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Jonathan Moscone, who is the Chief of Civic Engagement at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, formerly the Artistic Director of California Shakespeare Theater, playwright, but mostly a director, which means that you haven't been doing too much directing lately, have you? <laughs> no, I did something earlier this year at the Magic Theater. I did Paula Vogel's Baltimore Waltz. But no, I don't do as much because my job in and of itself really takes the work that YBCA does. It sort of takes it outside the four walls into the public realm. So it's not really incorporated into my job. So I need to kind of carve out more time to direct because I, I miss directing. I love it. That was quite a good production, actually. Oh, you, you work with a friend of mine, Patrick Alperoni. Love him. The whole team was great. And Paula Vogel actually came to opening night. Did you have any dealings with her during the... Yeah, I've known Paula for many years. I directed How I Learned to Drive, which was her Pulitzer Prize winning play. I did that in Dallas, and I met her then. And then many, many years later, we've occasionally seen each other on other coasts and had a couple of cigars and drank vodka. And we didn't have cigars this last time, but she came out for rehearsal, and we spent a lot of time. And she was, you know, it's such a deeply personal play, and yet she's such a generous playwright, the probably the most generous playwright I know. And she gave me so much latitude, not in interpretation, but in sort of helping to make the story my own, because it's so hers that she just understood that the best way for it to be to be revealed was to make it ours, to make it, you know, uh, Lauren English's story of loss, my story of loss, and her story of loss was part of that as well, Paula. What is that relationship like? When you said she helped you, how does a playwright help a director on a play like uh, Baltimore Waltz? There are very different ways that playwrights help, work with, need help, want to collaborate, and your job as a director is to really clue into that. Living and not living, you know, the not living ones are harder because you have to intuit that and you have to work with people who help you understand that. But in terms of Paula, particularly, she would tell me why the play was written, what each story in the play sort of reminded her of and where it came from or what she would tell me stories about her brother. She would tell me all about Carl and what kind of person he was, what he was in love with, what kind of energy he was. What, And she just would tell me over and over again. She wouldn't then say, and therefore the actor playing Carl needs to be a certain way. She didn't say that. She said quite the opposite. She just talked about what he was like and she just let me kind of swim in that. And that allowed the actor to have something to respond to, but also to make it his own. So at that point, you're talking to Patrick and you're explaining to him what she said at that point? Well, no. She came into rehearsal and I just let her have time with the actors. I I sort of stood out of the way and let her tell stories and let them ask questions. She was open to answering any question from like, what does this line mean, which some playwrights don't want to tell you. That was not a concern for her, or to uh, letting her just sit and tell stories and remember Carl. I mean, one of the, I think, joys of her seeing that play done again and people rehearsing is that she gets to remember her brother and she gets to talk about her brother and she gets to see 
how she responded to her brother. And it's such a love letter and it's so surprising, the, the piece. It's so sad, but you don't know it's sad until really at the end when it really falls apart. And you just see such a, such a brilliant artistic mind grappling with something incomprehensible. Well, before we move on, it's part of what came to be almost like the AIDS plays of that era. There was Normal Heart, there was Baltimore Waltz, As Is, is. and of course, Angels. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they're all coming back now? Because people are still dying of AIDS. Michael Friedman just passed a brilliant theater artist. Because we don't remember and we need to, and we see hypocrisy and that has harmed humans in policy, and we see it now. And I think AIDS was a policy as much as anything else. The, the lack of policy was a policy. And the impact on human individuals and how we've struggled through that is foremost on uh, the minds and hearts of so many people. And so these plays, they really do remain classics. They're really, you know, on top of it all, they're pretty excellent plays. They're just excellent plays. They will last a long time. Paula's play will be relevant forever. Tony's play will be relevant forever. You know, these came from very specific places, but they generate humanity. They sing from the heart and, and the mind, really, in such great concert. Normal Heart is going to be done by Rhino, and of course, mm. Berkeley Rep is doing Angels. Angels, that'll be great to see Tony Ticcone. That man helped bring that play into life. He was one of the key people making that possible. He's never directed it. Now he gets to do it. Jonathan Moscone, you are the chief of civic engagement at Yerba Buena. What is the YBCA 100? There's an event this coming Saturday the 28th. What is this? For the past several years, we have, as an organization, come together to nominate the people, the organizations, the movements we believe are shaping the culture. Mostly, if not entirely, of our countries, but we sometimes go outside of our country because we are part of a larger world than just our country. But these are people, artists, architects, politicians, activists, poets, dancers, musicians, a whole range of people who would be considered creative change makers, people who are asking really, really compelling, piercing questions in their work. And their work, excellent as it is, is really built on having an impact of changing and moving culture. We all know, and we really run with this knowledge, and this is really core to our work at YBCA, that culture precedes policy. For example, when gay marriage passed, it passed before, before the Supreme Court said it was going to pass. The culture had gone there. So there are people and there are organizations and there are artists and creative people making those changes happening around issues of equity, which I think is the major issue. Everything falls from there. And these people are working at it in such diverse ways. And so we decided we'd like to honor them and name them. And we name a hundred of them. And they range from people who are a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist like Jose Antonio Vargas to the incredible dancer performer Lil Buck to Bjork to um, Melora and Melanie Green, who are artists and curators and community organizers here in San Francisco to Julie Phelps, the artistic director of Counterpulse. 
to Samora Pendercuse, who is a Bay Area native, who is an incredible composer and pianist. These are all people who use their platforms to ask complicated questions and to try to move the culture forward towards moral, racial, and social justice. Are they all going to be there, though? Oh, I wish. We're, we get bigger <laughs> and bigger every year. No, the folks who'll be here, our headliner is Jill Soloway. Jill is the writer and director of Transparent, which is probably my favorite television show. And I love Dick. Jill will be giving a keynote speech in our third session. So there are three sessions that start at 1230, and the whole day goes until 7 o'clock. You can come to all of it, or you can come to three sessions. In the first session, we have a comedian, Zara Nurbaksh, who is a feminist Muslim Iranian-American comedian. She is astounding. We have Jose Antonio Vargas. We have Malkia Cyril. And we have Lil Buck performing with Samora Pinderhues on the piano. And then in the second sessions, we have a poet, activist, Stacey Ann Chin. We have a filmmaker and rapper named Boots Riley, who is astounding. Latifa Simon, a major activist, MacArthur Genius winner and BART board member. Saul Williams, the poet Saul Williams, and artist Saul Williams, and actor Saul Williams, and also Samora will be playing with Saul. We also have Deborah Cullinan, who was our CEO, who's going to be in conversation with Jill Soloway in the third session, with also um, Abdi Sultani, who is the astounding executive director of ACLU Northern California. For more information, ybca.org. Jonathan Moscone, what is DREAM, this public art installation? You were responsible for that? No, I wasn't responsible for that. I helped make it happen. I have a team member who was the curator of it and the artist who was a YBCA 100 list maker from last year, Ana Teresa Fernandez, created this piece in response to the life of a man named Mike Dream Francisco, who was a peace fighter, a former gang member who was trying to create peace among warring gangs in the East Bay, and he was gunned down. People in the community created these wall murals, this graffiti, on a storefront or a building front at the base of Bernal Hill, where it went 101 and 280 split. It was his moniker, dream, dream, dream. And she was so inspired by what he did and what they did. So she wanted to take that inspiration and lift it up for the youth in the Excelsior who helped her work on this and were the center of our youth programming at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in the Excelsior. And she wanted to inspire them and she wanted to inspire passersby and she wanted to inspire commuters to dream, to dream of a better city, to dream of a better life. And it could not have been more relevant given what the attack has been on dreamers. And now this lives for two years to remind us what it means to dream and uh, amidst what some consider kind of nightmare situations. It's about 50 feet wide, about, I can't remember how tall, maybe 12, 15 feet tall, and it shimmers, silvery shimmery into the light, and it, it, it really moves beautifully in the wind. You can see it from 101, you can see it from 280, you can see it from 101. It is quite stunning. Could it last longer than two years, you think? It might go and, and travel to other parts of the country. So right now we know it's going to live for two years. I think it's pretty iconic. I remember driving by there as a kid going to school, and uh, I never dreamed when I was doing that. And I'd love to be inspired every day. Jonathan Moscone, Chief of Civic Engagement, and I spoke with you about almost two years ago when you'd taken this job, and I said, kept asking, what is it? What are you doing? And 
your answer was really vague. So here we are a year and a half later. What did it turn out to be? What are you doing? I mean, you organized this uh, YBCA 100 and you help facilitate DREAM, but what is the job now? Does it have a form? Yes, it does. There is a department called Civic Engagement, but it is also the ethos of the organization to engage our organization in the life of our city. So a lot of theaters, a lot of arts organizations, they'll have community work. They'll work with communities on certain things. They'll have education programs. We do that, but we do that with sort of a desire to have impact on policy in the city. So that's where the civic comes in. So we have several programs that come from our curation, our department. And I have a team of people who are really experts in doing this. And I help make sure that what they do fits into the organization's priorities and we help get the support for them. And those include youth programming at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School, which I just talked about with Dream. We work with Bessie Carmichael Elementary School in South of Market, so many of the students of which come from the Tenderloin. And so we've been working with them to activate the youth around food justice and safe passages, walking to and from school. So the idea is that we take art and put it in service of community need. That's one way we do it. The other way we've done it is on the other end of the spectrum is through advocacy. Last year, I was a co-proponent of the ballot measure, Proposition S, to restore the hotel tax allocation to fund the arts in San Francisco, which started in 1961 to help fund the convention center, which ended up being named after my father, and also to support the arts organizations of San Francisco. By 2013, all of that money had been taken away and put back into the general fund. So this ballot measure was to restore that. YBCA was a central component to it, but we worked with a huge coalition of arts organizations and homeless family service organizations to really protect the vulnerable communities of San Francisco. We got 64% of the vote, which in many cases would be considered a mandate, but we needed two-thirds. But we're looking at our options. We're looking at if and how we can go back to the ballot, how we can continue to work with City Hall, because right now we have 64% of the vote, which means that City Hall now listens to us because that's a majority of the people. And we continue to build coalition and build strength so that we can really have a healthy and stable funding, both of the arts communities that range from the SF Ballet to the Asian Pacific Islander Cultural Center, African American Cultural Center, to American Conservatory Theater, to the Magic Theater, to every part of the arts organization that makes up the diverse ecosystem of San Francisco. So that community and the community of people who are fighting for families who are homeless and houseless in San Francisco. Do you have any relationship with the idea of building more of an arts community mid-market around the Strand? We're not particularly focused on that. We're fully in support of more arts organizations, more art in our city. We have worked as a really close coalition member with ACT to help them sort of in their really, really strong effort to help transform a neighborhood that allows art to flourish in a neighborhood that has been blighted for many, many years. But it's it's a complicated issue. And so what we try to do at YBCA, which is also what inspires us with our YBCA 100, is we try to get at the gnarly questions of how to how to help change the culture of an area like Central Market which is one that has been really treated very poorly by its city, and how to help build a sense of pride and cleanliness and safety, and in the case of ACT, what they're doing, culture. So I think we all have to continue to work together to do that. 
and at the same time ensure that the homeless people who have gathered there have a place. That's guess. right. The issue of, of houselessness in San Francisco is not one about disappearing people out of the sight of, of us and making sure that our lives are, are less complicated. This is a deep, complicated question that includes mental health, that includes the lives of individuals. And, you know, this city really struggles with that because we are not a draconian city. We are a very humanistic city. And sometimes that gets in the way of making really strong policy. So what we have to do is work with city government. We also have to work with community members. There are community organizations that struggle and work with this successfully and in difficult ways. So the idea is to really build radical partnerships. That's another thing we do in civic engagement. We build radical partnerships. We never do anything we do alone. We believe that no matter how little money we have to do something, we have the abundance of creativity and imagination. And we have the ability to work with city government, to work with community organizations, to work with schools, and to work with artists to actually come together to solve very complicated, intractable issues like the public health and safety of our city. Jonathan Moscone, have you ever thought about following in your father's footsteps as a politician? I think I've followed in my father's footsteps, period. I think as a politician is not necessarily the path I would choose myself, though I do find myself far more politically active now that I'm in this position, where I do have understanding of the complicated life of city politics in a way that I didn't growing up. To me, I had an instinct because I lived in it and I smelled it and I breathed it and it was tall and around me like redwood trees. So you know you can smell redwood trees if you lived among them? I could smell politics because I lived amongst it. But in terms of the detail of it, it's a hard road. It's, you're, there's a, it, this is a really gnarly city, San Francisco, to negotiate through. I love the idea of working with supervisors and really understanding how they respond to their very specific constituent needs. And I think the arts have a capacity to draw a line through diverse constituencies and help knit 11 districts together. So like, if I had like my dream, I would be a politician as an arts leader, right? But I wouldn't be a politician without the artistic leadership that I have been granted and I continue to try to earn. So I think those combinations to me feel like how I would follow in my father's footsteps. And because I lived much longer now, I'm now five years older than my father was when he died, I have to kind of continue those footsteps into my own. We've finally reached a point where the career that was made by what happened on that day in 1978, Diane Feinstein's continues. I mean, she's running for re-election yet again. I think once you get a taste of it and once you're in the game and once you really have a say in what goes down, it's hard to let go of that. It really is hard. And I think, I think they, they, people, I think I imagine Diane and, and, and Nancy Pelosi, these are people who have worked so hard. They're now working in a really, really adverse situations and I think it would be really hard for them to walk away. I think their responsibility is too great. That's what I think. I can look at this from very different angles, but I, I can see the need to stay to stay in the game. Did you know Pelosi in those days? Sure. Sure, we grew up with the Pelosi's. 
great family. You know, we still are very close family friends. And I have still remain close to Nancy and get to see her whenever, uh, whenever we have family occasions or an event that we're together. And she's, you know, she loves to do anything but talk about politics when she's around family friends. She loves to talk about theater. She loves to talk about the arts. That's her fantasy, being in the arts all the time. So that's, and you asked me if I'd rather be a politician. If, if one of the most important politicians of our country would rather be in the arts, I, I think you know the answer to that. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship of the arts and the national scene in politics. What do you think theater is doing? Can theater in America do anything to counter on some deeper level the white nationalist, the racist, and the absolutely insane presidency of Donald Trump? The way I see it happening in the American theater well, you do see a far more diverse display of voices being shown on the stages of the American theater. Increasingly, that's only, only going to get better and better and better and more powerful. So the voices who are telling the stories are different than the story that's being told to us. But I think the thing that the American theater is even doing more deeply and, and can be a model for this country is how it's looking at its systems of decision making and governance and who is deciding the fate of what stories get told and who is deciding who gets to be invited to these theaters. The doors are opening wide in the American theater. There is a huge effort to diversify, to create avenues of inclusion, and to aim towards the ultimate goal of equity through the way that theaters are being structured from board governance to staff leadership to artistic directors to the artists who are being hired. And I see that as the real cultural shift, right? That's why one of the people we have honored as our list maker is Carmen Morgan, who has been significantly central to the work of uh, creating equity, diversity, and inclusion in the American theater and runs an organization out of Ashland, uh, Oregon, in concert with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival called Art Equity. She's going to be in town, and we're going to have her uh, say a few words to our, our live stream audience because we're going to be live streaming this event, first big event that we've live streamed at YBCA. So hopefully we'll be able to read hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Well, we've got a situation now in the Bay Area where TheaterWorks, ACT, and Berkeley Rep are all going to be looking for artistic directors. One of the issues that comes up is that when any particular theater company is looking for one person, they want to pick the best person. Okay. Whereas if all three find that the best person is a middle-aged white male, then we have a problem. Agreed. But if you really open up a search and you really intentionally include other people in this search who are beyond that, because I think what you have to say to yourself is, what constitutes the best person? If you think that the answer of excellence only narrows itself to the people who have had these jobs before, that's a failure of imagination. Right? That's the paradigm that we need to struggle against and fight, fight against and change. If everybody is really given the opportunity and really sought out, and that means going to places and people who have not been afforded the job just before this because this hasn't happened before. You have to go beyond that. You hire for the great talent of people and the great minds of people. You don't hire for the resume. If you hire for the resume, I wouldn't have been hired to run Cal Shakes. I had never done Shakespeare in my life. Yes, I was a white man. I still am. And I was not yet middle-aged. But no one hired me for my resume. So you just have to take that belief. And I think everyone would agree with me you don't hire for the resume. So start thinking about what that really means. Take that 
talk and go for the walk of it and really get in there. Because I would love to see theater lead the way in that regard. And yes, are there white people who can run theaters and are extraordinary allies and have made opportunities? Yes, of course. But are there people who have yet to be at the table, who have women, people of color at the table, at the head of the table? Not enough, not nearly enough. Well, Carrie Perloff came from a small theater company in New York and transformed ACT from nothing. She had no resume that would have made it that a natural choice. And to this day, you can count relatively easily the number of women who run theaters, and that needs to change. And you're constantly modeling life for younger people in any, any field. And we want to continue to model life where there is capacity to see yourself at the top of it, to see yourself making the decisions. So this is the time to make those kind of calls. And it doesn't, it, it, it can be revolutionary, it can be evolutionary. You know, I think we can fight for revolution and really, really maybe accept evolution in terms of leadership, but I think you gotta fight, you gotta fight as far as you can just to keep those doors really, really moving open, to look in ways you haven't looked and to look inside yourself and see what barriers are keeping you from giving power over to other people. Jonathan Moscone, if you were an artistic director now, and you're looking at the political scene, does that change how you look at finding plays, at being a curator of plays, do you think? Sure, yeah. You know, I never, as an artistic director, thought, you know, this is what's going on in the political climate. I must do a play about this. It wasn't where my generative part of me lived. I don't think it ever would live. I think there's a kind of a deeper way of thinking about it for me, which is, who is not in your building, right? Who's not in your building? Why aren't they in your building? So what you're doing on stage is really, really important. But what you're doing, how you're doing it, for whom you're doing it, why you're doing it, and what do you hope to achieve with it at the other end, right? It's one thing to do a political play. It's another one to use theater as a political platform. Those aren't the exact same things. So I would never consider myself someone who would say, I'm going to do that play because our government we have to speak out against. Even if we like the people in power, we have to speak out against them because this, right. is, this is like deciding our lives. We have to talk back and say, no, I'm gonna decide our lives. Now we have to do it more than ever. But who is in your audience? Who is welcome? The politics of public space. We are spaces, theaters are spaces meant for the public. So I think of theaters as public space. Who gets to be in the public realm of your theater? That's how you speak back. And what play you're doing will change that. Does that play have to have the topic of politics to do it? Not necessarily. Does the play have to have relevance to communities that you believe need to be in there? Of course. What's an example of a play that you did at, at Cal Shakes that isn't, quote, political in that way, but that did involve the audience the way you're talking? I think the first play that we did, uh, I'm not going to say what year it was, but it was Spunk that George Seawolf had written, adapted from Zora Neale Hurston stories. This was a play about African-American life in America. It was told by a cast of African-American actors and director, gave the stage over, let the story be told, and people, we started to develop a new relationship to a new audience has never been. And I found it was not only an, just a beautiful piece of theater and really rousing and delightful, and we created programs afterwards where people got to dance on stage. We started to open the door of not only who could be at the theater, but who gets to tell their story and what theater could be. 
And I think when you start to see those doors opening up, those are the political moves that I made, right? One could think that running an outdoor theater would be super democratic because it's outdoors. Everyone likes the outdoors. Well, no, getting to Arinda is not a democratic act. Being outside is actually kind of complicated. Theater can be complicated. All the signals you send can actually create barriers no matter what your house is. So you have to really be conscious. And so when we started to do plays where we were looking at who was in the room, who wasn't in the room, those were the political acts we made, right? And it started the first time when I did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in 2000, right? Which is not necessarily a political... You could see it through political lens, but it's not a political play. But the fact that I took a play that wasn't Shakespeare in a mostly all homogeneous kind of deal, which was Shakespeare all the time, and changed that, that opened the door of who could come into the organization. That was political. So you keep evolving what your politics mean, and sometimes people do it in the name of the play they do it, and sometimes it's the kind of play they're doing it, and, and I think ultimately it's who, who makes up the community that, that makes the work and experiences the work. There was a play recently at Cal Shakes. Eric Ting has done some very interesting things there. But Glass Menagerie was transformed into a very different play than what we know of as Glass Menagerie. Within its context, it was successful. I have questions about the nature of the context. Is it viable to take a play and transform it into something so different? I think I've seen about 100 productions of The Glass Menagerie. I know what the traditional take is. I understand the context of the play. I know the play. I got the play. It's not a brand new play. I think we can all go with a radical reimagining that places this story in a culture that has not been represented through, I think, one of the great pieces of American literature. I think that's the context. I think the context is, we've seen this play. Let's see it through new eyes. That, I thought, was fantastic. I also loved, I thought, Karen Aldridge's Amanda. And, you know, to say that she was a great Amanda, despite what color she was, is, to me, not true. I think she was a black Amanda. And she was a brilliant Amanda. And she was everything Amanda. So, to me, I saw one of, if not the best Amanda in a really long time. And it was because she was everything that she was on stage. As far as I'm concerned, I saw something new. I even saw something new in the actress, I want to say her name is Phoebe. I'm so sorry, I can't remember her name, who played Laura. Not a professional actor in any way whatsoever. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's not going to go so well. How do you get through that long scene in act two? I'll tell you, I was on the edge of my seat because I thought, oh my God, this is real. And I never thought it was real. So I think there are ways that we have to just allow ourselves to kind of just go with it because there might be something on the other side that reveals something so, so beautiful and so exciting that we just want to go there and go, you know what? Okay, I didn't like that. For example, one can say, I didn't like that. Well, it's not like the glass measure is forever ruined. You'll see another production literally a couple of weeks later and go back to that. But this is the opportunity to give voice and to see a new person tell a story that they didn't get to tell. And boy, for me, that was really exciting with under Lisa Portes' direction. So I, I think what Eric's doing is, is extremely brave, far more overtly political than I, than I took it. But I fully support what he's doing because he's a really excellent thinker and he's, he really, really is alive to the world that he's in. And I think 
that's the best thing that Cal Shakes could have right now. And I hope the audiences really love that about him, is that this man really cares what kind of stories come to that stage. Well, there was Black Odyssey after that. I love that. extraordinary. I love that. I agree. One of my favorite pieces of theater forever. I had very mixed feelings about that Glass Menagerie because on the one hand, Aldrich was amazing. And at one point early on, I said, I have to go with this. I just have to go with it because this is what I'm seeing. Afterward, in talking with an artistic director and director in the Bay Area, we were going back and forth about this. He loved it. And he thought that plays need to stay alive by doing this. Mm -hmm. But the queer sensibility of Tennessee Williams was gone. Sure. Yeah. But that was just because that's not where she took it. That's not because it was a play done by actors of color. I think that's just where Lisa's head went. When I did it, I did it many, many years ago, and boy, the queer sensibility was in it. Probably more so than somebody would want to give it credit for. When you're telling a classic, you're telling your story through a classic. We don't need to see Hamlet over and over and over again. We want to see someone's story through Hamlet. And so the artists you hire are the ones who are really going to go deep inside themselves and really reveal themselves in this work. Because the play is just a constant reflection of us. And the first us of a classic are the artists who make it. The second us is the audience that experiences it. Right? And that's what makes them so, that's what makes them classics. They are there for us. They're there for us to reflect on and to, and to think on and to, to speak our, our who, who gets to speak their beautiful truth through Hamlet? You know, I still contend to this day that Liesl Tommy's production of it at Cal Shakes was probably my favorite. Of Hamlet? Yeah. Jonathan Moscone, you mentioned at, when we began that you want to do more theater. Are you, do you have any uh, directorial projects in the works? No, I'm talking to folks, but not yet. At some point you plan to, though. Yeah. The YBCA 100 Summit is Saturday, October 28th, starting at 12.30, continuing into the evening. Yes, until 7 o'clock at night in our theater on Howard Street, Howard and 3rd in San Francisco. And for more information, you can go to ybca.org. And if you want to see Dream, just drive down 101 where it meets 280 and you will see it.